Hey everyone, I'm Walt, one of the High Rock pastors. I'm excited to get into our scripture today, but are you? Today's passage is a hard teaching about a hard topic, money. And I know when I encounter teachings like this, often my defenses go right up. And this could be happening for you too, regardless of your relationship with money. Perhaps you have a lot of money, but you're quick to say that you're not a fool like this guy. Or maybe you don't have a lot of money, so there's no barns in your backyard, so you're quick to dismiss this as a teaching for other people. Or maybe you just don't like talking about money, especially in a church context where it can feel weird or manipulative or loaded with baggage. I'll try not to be any of those things, though I am told sometimes I can be a bit weird. Apologies in advance. But there are a lot of reasons we avoid talking about money. Money is one of the last taboos out there. And today, people will often talk freely about their sex lives or mental health, past traumas, things that were hush-hush not too long ago. Our culture will willingly dive headfirst into discussions and debates about politics, religion, even contentious social issues. Everything there is fair game. But money, specifically our money, is different. Now, I'm close friends with a group of guys from college, so we've known each other for over 20 years. We've been through a ton together. Marriages, divorce, parenting difficulties, career crises, health issues, just about any tricky thing you can think of, we've talked about. But one day, one of my friends casually shared his annual salary with the group, and we were shocked. Whoa, 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 you, just, you can't go around talking about that. Even for our group, it felt too personal. I've been in other high-trust settings, like long-term small groups or in, in premarital counseling, where you can almost hear the record-scratch sound as soon as money is brought up. It's a total conversation killer. Why is that? It, it's not like we don't think about it. Like Snoop Dogg said, I've got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Re recent studies reveal that one in four Americans so that money is the thing they thought about most on a daily basis. And another one in four thought about their work, which is obviously connected to money. Another recent poll asked Americans how much money they would need to be happy. And the results averaged out to around $250,000 per year, which is over three times the median household income. Whenever I'm driving along the highway and I see a, a Powerball billboard, I am immediately caught up in daydreaming about what I would do with those mega millions. The, of course, I, I would tithe and give but hey, then the real fun would begin. Many of us ha have questions about money that we're, we're constantly chewing on. I I'm always asking, WWJD, what would Jesus drop? On his clothes, on his apartment, or his house. For, for Christians, how much is too much to spend on a smartphone or gadget? Should Christians drive luxury cars or, or go on nice vacations? As a pastor, how much is too much for me to spend on shoes before I end up on Instagram? Is it okay to enjoy an expensive dinner out? And, and what do we mean by expensive anyway? Maybe we should just give all of our extra money to the poor, but then who's going to take care of us? And what about sending our kids to college or insurance or retirement? We might answer these questions in totally different ways. We might have different experiences with money. But something that I think we can all agree on is that money is powerful. It impacts our lives and our relationships and our world in dramatic and drastic ways. And I would add that more than just being powerful, money is spiritual. Every financial decision is a spiritual decision. Every financial question is a spiritual question. What do I mean by that? Money is so much more than a number on a statement or, or a paycheck. It's deeply tied to our values, our, our feelings of self-worth, our, our sense of security. 
We equate having money with having happiness and success. We can also equate it with having God's favor or lack thereof. Many of us want to keep that aspect of our lives hidden. Our relationship with our finances is tied to an entire world of feelings and fears, values and validations. There might be some bright spots, but for many of us, there can also be a lot of darkness. Paul observed that some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And honestly, when I read that, my first reflection is just the people who have wandered from the faith. Because I love Jesus and I love the church, but money has been a great source of grief in my life. There is a very real grief of just not having enough money, of not being able to put food on the table, of feeling desperate. That is real. And I haven't made, uh, I haven't been in that situation before. But money has certainly made me feel desperate in other ways. When my friend shared about his income, it was funny. But it also reminded me that I made less than any other guy there. Yeah, it's a group that I have spent more time with than any other people. And yet in that moment, and afterwards as I kept thinking about it, I felt like I didn't belong. Not because anything had actually changed, but because I felt like if I didn't make enough, well, then maybe I wasn't good enough or man enough or adult enough or a whole host of other things. I've had more sleepless nights than I can count because I've been anxious about whether or not I was making good financial decisions. I've had more fights with Jen than I can count over really petty things that just poked at my financial insecurity. More times checking my account balance than I can count, not out of a genuine need to know, but purely out of an anxious impulse. And I've shared the grief of others who have gone through even worse. The divorces that started out amicable but ended up apocalyptic over the fight for finances. Friends who yearned for their parents to be present in their lives when they were younger, but their parents were just never around because they kept working for money that they didn't need. Families that were fractured over inheritance disputes, people who could never trust others for fear, they were only trying to get close to them for their money. And so much more. Do you have a story like that? Do you ever feel like instead of you controlling your money, your money is controlling you? Have you ever felt pierced with grief over a financial issue? I don't care if you left the faith and have been wandering back or if you've been here all along, I think this is something that so many of us have experienced and continue to experience to this day. We need a, a different way to relate to our financial resources, one that doesn't result in grief, but results in life. Today, we're going to look at a story in which a man brings a financial grievance to Jesus, but he doesn't get the answer he's looking for. He gets something much better even though it might not feel like it at the time. So let's dive in. Jesus' popularity had risen to a fever pitch by this point in the narrative. There are crowds in the thousands. It's like a, a stampede trying to get close to him. And out of the crowd, a man calls out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's a few interesting things about this request. It was common for rabbis to settle financial disputes. So there's something fairly standard about his ask. It's also worth noting that in Luke's gospel, Jesus spoke about money more than any other topic save for himself. He talked about it all the time. So it would make sense why this guy would want Jesus to settle a financial matter. But it's also a super lame request. And here's why. First, they were very clear inheritance laws back then. The distributions were, were settled with the children dividing the inheritance evenly among them and the eldest son getting a double share. Pretty black and white. Second, 
Has this guy seen what Jesus has been doing? Healings, miracles, amazing stuff. And he comes at him with this ticky-tack request. It'd be like asking Mark Cuban how much to tip at a restaurant instead of asking for a potentially life-changing investment advice. Is that really the best he can do? Jesus isn't having it. Not only does Jesus refuse to take sides, he challenges the very basis of this man's request. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? This is kind of an ironic twist. Because on one hand, Jesus is not going to adjudicate this petty quarrel. It's below his pay grade. But on the other hand, is Jesus a judge? Yeah. And he's about to tell a story about a man whose financial decisions, which are ultimately spiritual decisions, are going to be judged by God. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have laid up plenty of grain for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Yikes. (laughs) How's that for a how-it-started-how-it's-going story? This guy began his day thinking he had it made. He was living pretty. And in an instant, it was gone. Not all of his stuff, but him. The the control that he thought he had was just an illusion. And this parable reveals just how fleeting riches and future planning and even life can be. Where did this man go wrong? There isn't any sense that he was guilty of some kind of sin or injustice in acquiring his wealth. He was a farmer. He had a good yield. That's great. Exactly what you would hope for as a farmer. But there were heart issues at stake here. Before Jesus shared his parable, he he turned to the crowds and he offered this introductory statement. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is the key, not just for the man in the parable, but for the man with the inheritance issue and, and for us as well. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. This is a significant warning from Jesus that that I don't think we fully appreciate. Greed is deceptive and subtle. It's designed to trick and manipulate us and distort our relationship with money so that instead of controlling it, we're controlled by it. We we talked about the griefs that money can cause earlier. What's the knee-jerk reaction to these problems? (laughs) It's usually just get more money. (laughs) But is that really what we need, though? Jesus famously said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But how often have we turned down money out of concern for our souls? How willing have we been to take on significant spiritual challenges because we underestimated the power and the pull of money? It's easy to think, hey, don't worry, I got this. But maybe we didn't. We were fooled by the power of money. We thought it could do more for us than than it actually can while thinking it doesn't affect us as much as it actually does. We've all heard the horror stories of lottery winners whose lives end up in shambles because they weren't spiritually prepared for what would come with a windfall of cash. Athletes who have struggled under massive paychecks. Former high rocker Gray Bomber did a survey of dozens of estate planners and asked them what percentage of people who inherit substantial wealth end up crashing afterwards. And it was a sobering 70 to 90%. The man in the parable, he had a good year. But he too fell into the trap that God had warned people about 
long before Jesus. God led his people to the promised land, a land that was rich and abundant, but as they were entering into it, he said to them, be careful because you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Even the blessings from God can lead us away from God if we aren't careful. We have to continue to remember that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, literally thinking that we are what we have or that we will finally be complete once we have that thing, whether it's a a number in the account or an asset or an acknowledgement that we made it. This is a, a pitfall that all of us can fall into, whether we're multimillionaires or barely making ends meet or somewhere in between. The lie that what we can build up on earth makes us who we are. Studies show that additional money produces an additional happiness up to a point, usually around three times the poverty line when, when basic, needs are net, me, basic needs are met and there can be a little breathing room. But after that, there isn't any correlation between more money and more happiness, at least in any kind of lasting way. And that's where the man in the parable got it wrong. He felt that the quality of his life would be measured by what he had in his barns. More wealth would mean more good times, but he failed to realize just how fragile that dream was. God comes to him and says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The story that Jesus tells illustrates our utter lack of control. Even when we feel like we are the captain of our fate, this man was banking on many years of a comfortable life, but he isn't even going to see the next day. Tomorrow, it's not guaranteed. Quite simply, the man in the parable had a, a lack of, of imagination. He thought that his abundance was purely for his own benefit and that the best thing he could do with all of it was to store it up for himself. Just like the man who wanted Jesus to get involved with his inheritance dispute, he had small dreams. He he thought he had something amazing, years and years worth of wealth and comfort, but God showed him just how futile it all was. A few weeks ago, my daughter Ryan was invited to a birthday party at a Chuck E. Cheese. I hadn't been to a Chuck E. Cheese in about 30 years. They had definitely cleaned up the look a bit, and there was a lot less smoke than I remembered. But one thing was the same, the ticket counter with all of the cheap plastic trinkets. These are literal pieces of trash that you can buy with tickets you won or just pay cash for them. Ryan had something like $4 to her name, but when she saw those trinkets, she immediately reached into her little unicorn purse to fork over her life savings for a handful of them. And and I was incredulous. So I said to her, you fool, this very night that toy will surely break. Then what will you have to play with? I'm kidding, of course. But but I definitely tried to dissuade her from buying them. Why? Because I knew that even though she was enticed by the toys, they would not last. Instead of investing in something lasting, she'd just be wasting what she had. This is the lesson that Jesus was sharing with the crowds and with us as well. Jesus knows the temptations we all face to to measure our lives by an abundance or lack of possessions and wealth. That instead of viewing our resources as something that God has given us to steward and to use for good in the world, our money and our possessions end up using us. What's Jesus' solution? to get rich quick. (laughs) Jesus doesn't mean that the way we usually hear it though. 
We typically associate that saying with various schemes, typically sketchy ones, to, to build wealth as fast as possible. But Jesus tells us that the way to avoid the grasp of greed is to be rich towards God, to dream different kinds of dreams where our resources aren't just for our own comfort or our family's comfort, but for God's purposes in the world. Jesus famously commanded his disciples to store up treasure in heaven. But what is that exactly? It's not piles of cash. It's people. I love what the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians when he says, For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. We can do so much more with our resources than investing in a life that seems awesome but will ultimately fade. We can invest in a new kind of life that will last forever, a life in which we are investing in the good of others. That is the road to true riches. But don't wait. (laughs) Get rich quick, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. As Pastor Dave challenged us a few weeks ago, we will only hurt ourselves by delaying our discipleship. Because honestly, haven't we all been hurt enough by the traps of money? Earlier, I was reflecting on some of the financial griefs I've experienced. Over the years, I've done a lot of work to to release the hold that money can have on my heart. And that's come through practices of gratitude and generosity and and being more aware of the lies I'm tempted to believe so I can knock them back when they start to creep in. But all of these old griefs have come back to the forefront in recent months. As we announced last week, my family and I are preparing for a move out of the area this summer. It's all the feelings, all the time. We're, We're excited for what's ahead And yet we are incredibly sad to leave our community in Boston, particularly Hot Rock. Right now, there are a lot of unknowns ahead, especially in regards to big-ticket items like employment and and housing. And so to prepare for this move, I've clamped down hard on our spending and ramped up savings in a big way. I have an idea of what enough will be, but I can't say for sure. I can't predict the future. And this has really had an impact on my heart. I find myself back in old habits of of thinking about money all the time, experiencing real worry and anxiety like viscerally in my gut, and being reluctant to give when there have been opportunities to choose generosity. It's had me back in a place where I'm wondering, am I controlling my money or is my, my money controlling me? So this passage came just at the right time for me. I needed to be reminded that my life does not consist of possessions. I needed to remember that my worry can't add a single hour to my life. But God has given me the opportunity to be faithful today, to be rich today. I don't want to be like this man with the barns. I want to follow Jesus into freedom. And so Jen and I have just gotten super honest with one another about the fears we're facing, but also naming that we don't like our current relationship with our money. It's hindering our relationship with Jesus instead of helping us participate in his purposes. So we agreed that in this season, we wanted to practice generosity in the face of uncertainty, when it would just be easier to put more in the barn. And so we prayed that God would show us how to give. And God did. We, we were presented with an opportunity to give that asked more of us than we were expecting, which felt uncomfortable and, and risky. Should, should we really give this much? Is, is this wise? Should we wait until we are more settled? But as we, we processed and prayed, we were reminded that we can trust God with our future. 
This was an opportunity to extend real blessing. And we want our lives to be about blessing, not barns. Life, true life, does not consist in an abundance of possessions. We needed that reminder. And so friends, this Lent, I want to offer you a few practical suggestions for you and your family and your friends on how to get rich quick too. The first step is to simply take a spiritual inventory on your relationship with money. Ask yourself what feelings come up for you on the subject of money. Fear, confusion, embarrassment, anger, desire, contentment, something else. Name as best you can the reasons for those emotions. Second, what what motivates your earning, your spending, and your saving? Third, what, what impact does money have on your relationship with God, on your relationship with others? Fourth, how do you feel about tithing and generosity? How would you feel about increasing your giving towards others? Sit with these questions for a while. And then when you're ready, the the second step is to take the risk to to share this with others. This could be your spouse, your family, close friends, other high rockers who are asking the same questions. We need to break the power that this taboo has over us. And the only way we can do that is through honest conversation. Already, high rockers have been making huge strides in this through our theology lab. Other high rockers have used resources like the book God and Money or the curriculum Lazarus at the Gate to help facilitate conversations around budgeting, saving, and giving. And then lastly, this Lent, I encourage you to take a step towards greater generosity. One idea would be to fast from all non-essential purchases between now and Easter and use that extra money to just give away. Richard Foster said, simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying us. <laughs> increase joy in what you have, plus increase money to bless others? Sounds like a win-win to me. Or perhaps you can evaluate your current giving and see if there's extra margin to increase your tithes and offerings. Some of us have gotten to a place where our tithe of 10% feels automatic, maybe even thoughtless. It used to be a sacrifice, but now you hardly even notice. It's just something that goes out of the bank each month. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for being incredibly legalistic regarding their tithe, but missing the heart of God entirely. So how can we grow in our love for the things that God loves? I really appreciated what high rocker Grace Nicolette shared at a recent theology lab when she said that every year she and her husband try to increase their giving rather than just settle on something that felt comfortable. After many years, it's gone well beyond a 10% tithe. Not only was that a a remarkable practice, but she also spoke to the remarkable joy that came with experiencing more of God through giving. This is what Lent is all about. Experiencing more of God's full, rich life by letting go of the things we often grab onto in his place. We remember where this Lenten journey ultimately culminates. Jesus' death and resurrection. And we celebrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Friends, don't sell for barns or dreams of barns. Take hold of true riches today. Amen.